0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. It's our first episode of 2024, so if it's your first time with us or you've been here since the beginning, thanks for tuning in. We have an awesome guest today, the son of legendary musician Frank Zappa, My guest followed in his footsteps to become a master guitar player and composer in his own right, releasing six studio albums over the course of his career. He's also carried on the legacy of his father's music by fronting the successful group Zappa Plays Zappa. I'm super excited to welcome Dweezil Zappa to Guess That Record.
1: How are you doing, Dweezil? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. For sure, yeah. And where are we talking to you from? Well, I'm in a secret location, you know, somewhere in a bunker, way deep down below the Earth's surface.
0: (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It looks like uh, you've got all your recording equipment just uh, in the bunker. Just never know
1: what you're going to need.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And um, we're, so we're recording this on January 2nd, so we're freshly past uh, Christmas and New Year's, but I assume you had a good holiday?
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty low-key, spent mostly with dogs. We have three dogs. so
0: Nice. Yeah, I've got three dogs as well. Um, yes, just but, crazy um, enough to
1: have three just like us. Perfect.
0: Yeah, there you go. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited to be speaking with you today because I'm a fan of your dad, and you know i would say by association and through your own projects like zappa plays zappa you're probably the ultimate expert on all things frank zappa uh and, well i would think, you know
1: yes i mean yeah. <laughs> i did grow up around all the music watching how he made the music watching how he rehearsed the band watching how he played guitar watching how he made sounds with his guitar working in the studio working with the synclavier i was there for Most of the important things that uh, were his trademark things that ended up being well known to the world, especially uh, as he continued to be a composer and write music that was performed for orchestras and other things. So I was able to really see the whole creative process and it was a great education.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, super cool to talk with you for that reason. And I'm also a musician and a guitar player myself. And, you know, I think you're like the first like big time guitar player that we've had on this podcast. So nice. I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk with you about guitar as well. Sure. Um, and uh, so to start off, I always like to ask, you know, what was the first song or the first album that you remember hearing that sort of made you take music seriously?
1: Well, I only ever heard my dad's music growing up other than we had some 45s and a little uh, sort of, it was like a, um, a mobile little uh, PlayStation thing. You could take it from room to room. It wasn't very heavy. It was very cheesy plastic, but you could play little 45s on it. And so there were songs, Halloween songs, spooky songs, whatever. We just had like a little collection of some records that could be destroyed by this tiny uh, bad record player. And, mm. Other than that, I only heard my dad's music, so by the time I was 12, when I started hearing things on the radio and noticing other music, I had this feeling of, well, where's the rest of it? Why aren't they using all these other instruments? There's so many more sounds I'm used to, but I wasn't hearing any of it, and it was too simplistic for me, most of what I heard on the radio, so I wasn't wasn't instantly into what I was hearing. And it took a while to start to appreciate the simple things in other music. But I think what I I liked about music in general was that it was this idea that would be in your own head and then it was extracted out of that and it could be heard by other people. I saw this process that my dad would have and he would sit at a piano and he'd write some notes and then he would play it. And then other people would play it, but the, the sound was there first. So I always thought it was fascinating that that's how music worked. And as I got used to all the different things that I was hearing, I, I was able to have a, a broad appreciation for all kinds of music. But that being said, when I got really into guitar, at first I was really only into the technical guitar stuff. I liked what was happening in my dad's music and his playing, but it was very complicated and sophisticated as far as harmony and... Rhythms and stuff like that. So at some point, I thought, well, I'd love to be able to do that, but I got to start somewhere else. And the first thing that really struck me was Van Halen when I heard that. Uh, I re- that and Randy Rhodes guitar playing. The the style that they had was very technically proficient, but it was also musical, and it, it was a thing that was uh, it was pushing skill and musicality at the same time which reminded me of my dad in a way so i like that i like the technical aspect of it so if i was going to compare other music and listen to what was happening from a technical standpoint most of the music fell short because people couldn't play as technically proficiently as edward van halen or randy rhodes but that Eventually it flipped so that, you know, I didn't have to have everything be technical. It could just be like, it felt good. The groove was cool. The, the intention behind some just element of somebody going for something that maybe they couldn't even do, but they, they just went for it anyway. All that stuff became more appealing later. But as you know, as I was saying the, the technical side was really important at first, but if something's too technical now. Not so much interested, because it's I, I don't know it, it's it's more like an exercise unless it can become very well crafted arrangement and music together with the technical thing, which is rare. Uh, I think my dad did it very well, but other people I, I, I haven't found anything like it that I'm drawn towards
0: mm, yeah, and you you know it's interesting with with you because you really wasted no time sort of starting to record and all that stuff, because your first single uh, you you came out with when you were 12, um, which was my mother was a space cadet. Yep. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Van Halen. It was produced by Eddie, and I think it's so interesting because Eddie was a huge mentor for you. And I'm just wondering, like, how does 12 year old Dweezil start hanging out with Eddie Van Halen?
1: I don't know really exactly how all of it came together. I've come to learn some details more recently, like within the last five years that I never really knew. But essentially what I've been able to put together was that I was home, the phone rang and it was a guy saying it was Eddie Van Halen. My mom answered the phone. He was trying to talk to my dad. My mom said, get on the other line because back then, you know, you could have one phone in the kitchen and another phone in the other room. You could listen on either end. I had no idea what I was listening for. I just, I I was like, well, maybe I could tell if it's him, but I'd never seen him in an interview. I'd never heard his voice in an interview. We didn't have MTV or anything like that at that point because this was 1981, 82, somewhere right around there. And anyway, he ended up talking to my dad, and he came to the house about 20 minutes later. But how he got the number, it turns out that Steve Vai, who was in my dad's band, had gone to see Edward play at the Roxy with Alan Holdsworth the night before, and ended up somehow giving him his number, and it mentioned that he was working with my dad, and Edward said, oh, I like Frank Zappa, I'd like to talk to him. And somehow that was a connection so that Edward could eventually get in touch with my dad, but he ended up calling Steve. Steve wasn't home. His roommate gave Edward my dad's phone number, which Steve then got really concerned that he was gonna get in trouble because his my dad's phone number was given out without permission. And then as it all turned out, Edward called, came over, and then my dad called Steve, Steve came over. So the first meeting was Edward came to the house, He had a guitar that was later to be known as a Kramer, but he had a piece of black tape over the headstock. And he walked in, he started playing things I asked him to play, Steve got there, this guitar got passed around between the four of us. And it was like three hours of just asking guitar questions and seeing how he played. And and after that, a few weeks or a few months later, it was relatively fast we ended up doing my mother's a space cadet, but I had nothing to do with arranging that. I didn't say, Hey, could you produce my record or anything like that? It was just one of these things where it was like, Hey, uh, next weekend, you guys are going to record this song and uh, Edward's going to come by. And it was that kind of thing, but it was super crazy exciting, but I had no idea how any of that part of it uh, happened. And also the same for when he came to my uh, school, Uh, we were doing a show at my school and we were playing running with the devil. He came to the sound check and my guitar wouldn't stay in tune. So he left, went home, got a different guitar, came back to the sound check, gave me that guitar to play. And then I ended up being gifted that guitar. I called him the next day and said, thanks so much. And he said, Oh no, you can keep it. So uh, it was a crazy, crazy way to start off my experience with really getting into guitar and as it all boiled down, being able to see different players play up close and see exactly what they do, that really changed my ability to learn how to do things because it was an epiphany to see, oh, he puts his fingers here. Oh, he uses open strings. He picks like this. And I could see that stuff and see up close and it kind of just was burned into my memory at that point. And I could do the same with Steve Vai or my dad watching them play. So at 12 years old with no YouTube or any of that kind of stuff, I had an image in my mind of what the technical requirement was to be able to play certain things. I could see how your fingers are supposed to move. And then it just became, can I find those notes and get my fingers to go there? And that was really how I figured out how to play guitar.
0: Hmm. Yeah, what a what an amazing, like, you know, just to be in the same room with Frank Zappa, Eddie Van Halen and Steve Vai like that. That is uh, an education right there for sure.
1: For sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Now, so that that song, My Mother is a a Space Cadet, came out in 1982. And your first album was a few years later in 1986, and it was called Having a Bad Day. Um, and I wanted to specifically ask you about the track uh, Let's Talk About It, which featured your sister, yeah. uh, Moon Unit, on lead vocals. And it was funny because I was on YouTube uh, recently and I found the MTV premiere of the music video for that song. And the uh, the video is noteworthy because there was a lot of uh, famous cameos in it. Who right. are some of the people in that video for uh, for those who haven't seen it?
1: It's... Uh... It's been a long time. I don't know if I'll remember everybody, but it's kind of an oddball setup. But one thing that's funny is most of the videos that I ever made all had Robert Wagner in them. So he's a recurring character in basically every video I ever made. So he's in it. My dad was in it. Jane Fonda was in it. Vince Neil from Motley Crue was in it. Drew Barrymore, probably three or four other people, Charlie Sexton is in it. And
0: there was, um, one I noticed was uh, Don Johnson. Don
1: Johnson was in it.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Um, (laughs) uh, so it was just this kind of ridiculous thing where the joke was, you could have all these different people that are well known doing something behind the scenes in the video, like Vince Neil, the camera turns around and it's Vince Neil who's filming everyone. And then, uh, I think, uh, Jane Fonda was doing craft service and there was just things like that. That was, it was the joke was that all these people got together to make that video.
0: And, you know, the other thing that I liked about that song, uh, was to sort of hear moon sing yeah because you know most people will of course know her from valley girl where she isn't really singing in that song and i think she's got a great voice like she really to me is she sort of sounded like belinda carlisle or someone like that
1: there was a bit of that in her voice at that time
0: yeah Mm -hmm. um and so uh this is really what i wanted to sort of dive in about and that's of course the music of frank zappa now you started your zappa plays zappa project in 2006 And what made you decide that it was time to sort of uh, do something based around your dad's music?
1: Well, he sort of became relegated to the where is he now file. And people didn't really understand his music while he was alive. But for it to then get further pushed into the back drawer, I thought would have been a shame because he had so many musical contributions, not just the music, but the sound design aspect, the recording Things, the techniques and things that he did that were different from other people. So I was really interested in finding a way to put that on display to some degree. And I didn't really know if it was going to be something that would be done just one time or if it would happen over a period of time. But I wanted to put together a collection of songs that represented the totality of his work as opposed to the things that people thought they knew of his work. Because if you were only ever exposed to don't eat the yellow snow or Valley Girl or dancing fool or something like that, that might've been on the radio, you would think, Oh, I know what he's about. He's the jokey guy with the goofy lyrics, but that's really not the majority of his music at all. He had very serious music that was, it was starting to become recognized by a lot of orchestras and people that were interested in modern classical music but this was a way to say okay let's bridge the gap with all of that stuff all of his important serious music the fusion of jazz and rock and funk and all these things let's focus on all that stuff let the music speak for itself and just go and play it and do it in a way that's commensurate with what he did himself. So it was more of an apples to apples comparison. That's what the whole project was designed to do, and it succeeded in that way because once people started to hear that we were playing it, like I said, commensurate with the same way that he did it, there was even more of a respect for the music because you could see, wait a minute, all of these people in the band I put together had to go through a lot of effort to learn this stuff. You can't just go up there and play it. It takes months of rehearsal and it's a it's a really specific skill set. You got to find the right people to be able to play that stuff and execute it properly, memorize it and and do all the things that are required. So that was a big undertaking and it just kind of continued on from 2006 to 2020, when we played our last show, the, I, the amount of shows we did was probably close to 2,000 shows, maybe even over 2,000 shows in that whole time period all over the world. And we learned a lot of material. We didn't just play the same songs every time. So I'm going to guess we learned over 300 songs in that time frame. And a lot of it I have had filmed at different concerts, but virtually none of it has been released other than the first DVD. So mm. hopefully we'll be able to get some stuff out in the years uh, ahead here. Cause there's a lot of concert footage of really great performances of music that has never even been seen in terms of my dad playing it because it wasn't filmed when he played a lot of this material. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of cool things that exist, but just haven't seen the light of day yet.
0: Awesome. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing company headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, working with clients in different industries from all over North America, including Canada, the United States and Mexico. Marvel Marketing services include website design and development, website maintenance, search engine optimization, public relations services, and social media management, amongst others. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by GuitarWorks, one of Canada's top independent music stores for over 30 years. GuitarWorks carries a huge selection of musical instruments from the biggest brands in music including Gibson, Fender, Martin, Yamaha, and Paul Reed Smith. Visit any of their three Calgary locations or shop online at guitarworks.ca and join the Guitar Perks program to earn money back with every purchase. GuitarWorks, your total guitar store. This episode of Guess That Record is also sponsored by Recordland, home to the largest selection of music in Canada buy sell and trade tapes cds and vinyl located in calgary's inglewood neighborhood on ninth avenue southeast visit them in person or on instagram at recordland calgary you know i guess like talking about sort of you know playing your your dad's music um and just like kind of comparing his style of playing guitar to yours because i think like frank has like you, you know, just from listening to his music, I can really tell like the bread and butter is kind of his when he's soloing is the minor pentatonic scale, which is the best guitar scale. Um, yes, I use it's it definitely a,
1: a very useful scale. Um, he did favor Lydian as a mode uh, that mm-hmm. Lydian and Mixolydian is where most of his solos reside. And of course, the minor pentatonic scale exists in both of those modes. But uh, he really did extrapolate out further, he could superimpose other harmony at any time, and the band was good enough to recognize, oh, wait a minute, he's changing the color now. Now maybe he's going into some sort of augmented or whole tone or super Lydian dominant something. And they could actually reframe what was being played at the time. So the thing about his solo style was that he had a composer's vocabulary and he could listen and interpret what was happening in the moment and then decide to use whichever paintbrushes, whichever colors he wanted. And the band could also mold and shape the music at the same time. And that is what's unique about live music, especially when you have amazing musicians, you can create something in the moment spontaneously that that audience will hear. And only that audience will ever hear unless they're hearing a recording of it, but to be in the presence of it, while it's being spontaneously created is a different thing. And there is a magic to seeing something perform live that I think a lot of people can relate to sometimes, your first concert experience where you see something played live, that version of that song to you will be better than any other version that you've ever heard. So there's a lot of those kinds of experiences that people have had at my dad's shows. And then subsequently at some of our shows as well. So the comparisons between what we do and what my dad did, I've always tried to make it so that when I'm playing and I'm improvising, I'm playing in a style that is very similar to my dad's. I might play some of his actual phrases, but then I might also play my own ideas, but filtered through what my dad's vocabulary would be. And also using a sound that's evocative of the, the same era of whatever we're playing. So if I'm doing something from shut up and play your guitar, I'll try to recreate the Dynaflanger sound so that whatever I'm playing is really in that same world. I don't really like to take a complete left turn, although I do sometimes. I like to usually keep it in context to the music and be era specific.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you made a great point about you know how Frank would sort of use, you know, it would be in one place and then he switches to something else because that's i you know that's what makes his playing so interesting is you don't really know where it's going to go right um and um you know i i also wanted to talk sort of about you know you were sort of mentioning like the you know uh effects and tones for the right uh era or whatever and you know talking about the guitar yourself because your dad is easily one of the most prominent users of the uh the gibson sg and uh i'm proud to say that i am a member of the SG game. Very nice. Very nice. Um, and, uh, yeah. So why,
1: why was Frank such a a fan of that guitar? Well, I think the SG, once you get used to playing it, it becomes the easiest guitar to play because you have the best access to the upper register and it's just a well-balanced instrument. It has a nice mid range honk to it. So you can get some great rock tones out of it. And he did all kinds of things to modify his SGs. Sometimes they would have preamps in them. They almost always had some way to coil tap the pickups or knock one of them out of phase with the other. And he did a lot of stuff to get different kinds of guitar sounds. And he almost always blended a clean sound in with the distorted sounds. Sometimes it was more audible than others, but it was usually part of the foundation of his sound, because he liked to have the immediate attack of the direct guitar and then have the note bloom of two different sounds. So he might have more mid-range on this side and something that had more sustain on this side. So he had attack from the clean sound and then the different notes would kind of just jump out of the speakers. And you hear that. And sometimes he'd have a phaser or a flanger on one side. And that kind of, thing in a stereo atmosphere really filled up the space in an interesting and unique way. And he was always about creating layers of sound.
0: Mm -hmm. And this is sort of an educational question for you here, but um, you know, when I I, I was in high school, when I first got into your dad's music, but in a way I found it a bit daunting to get started with. And I don't mean it in the way that it was like too complex or too weird or or anything. It was daunting because there's just, there's so much of it. Right. He released 62 albums while he was alive. And then there's been even more stuff to come out since his passing. Um. So it's an insane amount of material. So, you know, if there's someone listening to this and they're thinking about getting into Frank Zappa, but they don't know where to start, what albums do you recommend they check out first?
1: I usually recommend Apostrophe and Overnight Sensation as the first place. And then if they like that, go all the way back to freak out and get a handle on what happened first, because that's a 10 year period and his music changes so drastically from freak out to apostrophe that once they kind of get used to both the early era and the apostrophe era, they're going to have a good idea of what comes after that and see how it keeps co-mingling through all of the the textures and ideas because he would um, basically have certain themes that would come back and forth throughout the records. He looked at his whole uh, body of work as essentially one composition. So that's why you have certain things that come and go and sometimes like a piece of music is in one song and then it appears later as its own song. So he Mm -hmm. was very much into recapitulating themes and taking music and reharmonizing it. I don't think there's any other artist that did as much to take their own work and reharmonize it and repurpose it in different ways, different styles. Uh, I've never seen it done by anybody else.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to go through a few Zappa songs with you because, sure. you know, as we talked about it earlier, you, you, by being family and having toured these songs for so many years, you really are the guy to, to break this music down. And I wanted to start with my favorite Frank Zappa song, which is Montana. Sure. Um, it was the first like original song of Frank's that got me interested in him. And I remember when I found it, I was like, oh, that's cool. There's a song about Montana because I've, I've spent a fair amount of time there, but uh, you know, it, uh, when I turned the song on, I was not expecting to hear about dental floss.
1: Or pygmy Um, ponies or, yeah, or mental toss fly coon, which was (laughs) the, the phrase that was supposed to be said was dental floss tycoon, but the singers, it was Tina Turner and the other girls that were part of the I they sang mental toss fly coon by accident. And that was something that was kept because, It was hilarious. Uh, But the the sounds that you hear on that song, that's a great representation of my dad's ability to essentially make an audio movie. There's narration, there's this talk singing, which is almost like rap, but he's doing all of this over a chord progression that is then orchestrated to have these things that are cartoon-esque that appear in between stuff. So they bring some of the lyrical content to life. And he does that with orchestration that you wouldn't typically hear in a rock context. So you're going to hear marimba and you're going to hear some different horns and flutes and guitar doing different things. And then you hear sped up vocals that were recorded at a different speed and some really fast singing, uh, having words that they have to say. That's a real tongue twister. So there's a lot of stuff in that song that you hear. And then he's got this ripping guitar solo. So all of this stuff that's all in one song is more than most people would do if they wrote their very best song and they only wrote one great song. It probably still wouldn't have all of the elements that are in that song. And Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing where he, he had the ability to write stuff like that, where you think to yourself, wow, how could he get that much in there? And that's just one song. And then he's got dozens of others that have this that sound nothing like Montana. So he Mm -hmm. he rarely repeated his ideas. There's really not one song that sounds alike on all the albums that he made. He didn't have a formula of, oh, it's this chord progression and I do this and then I do this, rinse, repeat. He never did anything like that. So Montana is fun and funny, but there's intricate parts in it. The um, melody, that part is so crazy. The, the instrumental part that da, 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 that whole part is so hard to play if you try to learn that on guitar. And it was never played on guitar until Steve Vai was in the band. But then... Mm-hmm over a period of time, some people attempted to learn it because it was a great challenge. I used to play it live on stage when we played it, but there's really difficult rhythms in it yet. At the same time, it's so musical and hummable, even though you've got crazy nested tuplets and all kinds of stuff in there.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's got such a great groove to it. Like I, you know, I just, I would love to like cruise down the Pacific coast highway playing that song. It's right. It's uh Yeah. And, you know, I've seen a bit of debate about its meaning, because like when you think about it, like what does it mean? Right. Like you can't raise a crop of dental floss. Um, And I've actually I've seen some people suggest that like it's, you know, a commentary on Frank's music career or it's like about the American dream. But did Frank ever elaborate on the song's meaning if it even has one in the first place?
1: No, I think it's just a a goofy idea to make uh, a song about somebody that is a dental floss tycoon it's just mm-hmm. such the american thing that you could actually have a product like that and whoever invented that could be a tycoon from that i think the absurdity of that is really more what it speaks to but then you put pygmy ponies and all this kind of stuff in there and it's just the absurdest kind of idea that it's almost like a, a little musical cartoon.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could, you could say, ask similar questions about a lot of other songs, like, you know, who, who is Chunga and why do they need revenge?
1: Yes, that that would be <laughs> yeah. something that could be explored. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's a, a wrestler.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to bring up uh, Joe's garage because. I think, you know, despite the fact that it's like this big triple album rock opera, uh, in a way, I find it to be like his most cohesive album. Uh, And the obvious highlight from that record is Watermelon and Easter Hay. And I was reading that you once said it was the best solo that Frank ever did. Do you still hold that opinion?
1: Yes, I think it's an amazing solo. Uh, He's played many uh, fantastic solos, but if you consider the context of the chords that he's playing and the note choices at the exact time where the chords change and what he was able to do just as an improvising player and to create this thematic buildup with rhythmic twists and turns, nobody plays like that. Mm -hmm. Even if he was to sit down and try to write that as a guitar solo, I don't think he would try to, create that. He's done other things like that where he's then taken it and extrapolate it further. So if you take a song like Revised Music for Low Budget Orchestra, he improvised a nylon string guitar solo on that that was then transcribed and horns were added to it to follow exactly what he played. And then it was harmonized sometimes with very bizarre harmonies where they're very close And the sound was this amazing texture that you would never think to have. Nylon string plus a bunch of horns playing in this really idiosyncratic way. But he had a couple of uh, lines that he played that were rhythmically incredible. And just the way that it has all these twists and turns, it's, it's similar to some of the stuff that he did on Watermelon and Easter Hay, but he left that one just expansive and open and the tone that he had is just so heartbreaking.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's um, you know I think like uh, it's such a beautiful track because even though it's just a guitar still just a guitar solo, it's still got structure to it like it's a proper piece of music. You know, one one track that it kind of reminded me of in a way was um, Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. Since they're, you know, both 10 minute long guitar solos, but watermelon, you know, in the context of the album tells a story rather than just being a platform to do a really long guitar solo.
1: But there is also the narrative that is basically saying this is the last imaginary guitar solo, because in the future, music will be illegal. It will be taken Mm -hmm. from people and they will not have the ability to hear things or even imagine them in the Mm -hmm. future. So it makes it even more poignant when you think about it like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and this was a track that I I wanted to bring up because I'm currently in the process of learning it on guitar, and it's uh, Peaches on Regalia. Yeah. Um, And for those unfamiliar with it, it's a extremely complex instrumental. And I've been learning it by sort of breaking up breaking it up into chunks. And I've got about the first minute and 15 seconds down, but I know it gets crazier from there. So are there any tips you have to get through that middle section where it's just like a whole bunch of notes being thrown at you?
1: Well, it's, that's almost a very Bach like interlude and it's in three part Mm -hmm. harmony. There's two sections that have these um, pretty fast notey sections, but the fingering for those things is going to be the challenge and then that that, uh, relates to how you pick them so i found it easier to do a lot of string skipping in it rather than try to play within actual chord shapes it's outlining a lot of triads but you have to find a way to make that work for your picking and the fingering i i think Mm -hmm. most people would not be able to just have like let's say it was a major triad and it was four notes I don't think most people would be able to pick individual strings and get that to sound right. You have to make that move across different strings. And so that's the the challenge that you're going to find is the picking and the fingering to make it work for what you're able to do. But it's a it's a beautiful run, especially if you learn all the different parts, the different harmonies there, if you if you really figure out which each one is doing, it's a great thing for your ear. And it's also for fingering. You'll see, oh, wow. That harmony really works in an interesting way because it's not just all parallel harmony. There's things that have um, different movement, contrary motion.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and thankfully, you know, it's only a three minute song, so it uh, you know, it's not like too crazy to, to figure out in my opinion. Well, there's Um, some hard stuff
1: in there. And a lot of people, when they uh, try to figure it out, they, they don't get it right, you know? So yeah, for sure. uh, It's it's tricky. But the interesting thing was the very, um, the song itself, the original performance of it had about a three minute blues jam in the middle of it. And all that was edited out. mm, That would have been a very different song if it had that in it.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, that, uh, It doesn't seem to match at all there. So uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, And, you know, for you uh, in the concept, since you've, you know, played these songs live and stuff, would you say that the songs like Peaches or maybe something like Keep It Greasy from Joe's Garage are the most satisfying to play because of how complex they are?
1: Uh, Well, there's definitely a lot of complex songs and some more than the ones you mentioned, even more complex than that, that we've played, you know, songs like uh, G-Spot Tornado or Dog Breath Variations, or um, I mean, there's uh, Inca Roads has some very, very difficult things in it, but the satisfaction of playing the music is, I think all the way across the board. If you can play any of these hard songs, the Black Page, there is a certain sense of satisfaction that you have reached the top of the mountain. Cause there's very few things that could be any harder than the songs that we're talking about. And mm-hmm. the thing about them is that even though they're very technically difficult, they are something that you can follow and enjoy as a piece of music rather than just a technical exercise. So you take something like the black page, which was written as a drum solo. And then you imagine that my dad just said, oh, I'll just put some notes to those rhythms. It's the opposite way that most people would write music. He had all the rhythms first, and then he just attached notes to it. So part of what I learned from that was if you've got strong enough rhythms, you can put any notes that you want. So let's say you have a group of five and you subdivide it with two, then three. So one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. He used that a lot. You hear it in a lot of his music that's in Echidna Zarf, da, 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 da 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 da, all that kind of stuff. But the thing about that is if you have that strong rhythm as a contour, it doesn't really matter what notes. It, it could be random notes, but then you land on a strong downbeat that's in the right key at the right time. And you can be very experimental with what you want to do in your improvisational playing or even in your composition, because the strength of the rhythm is, it's strong enough for the the listener to go on that journey. And so I started working on my own improvisational skills based on trying to think of what are the different ways that I could create groups of five on one string, two strings, three strings, so that I would have some sort of ability to improvise. I might have certain licks that could be designed from that, but they're basically just little um, motifs that could be mixed and matched and turned around. But it's really about creating enough of that rhythm to then land and then start a new phrase. So that compositional strategy I put into my Um, my improv playing and it's been something I've developed for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, but that's the thing that I find really interesting, especially if you look at the black page, it's, it was all rhythm first and then the notes, which means that that song could be rewritten a million different ways. You could put Mm -hmm. different notes to it and it won't sound the same, even though it has the rhythms, it's not going to sound the same, as the black page, if you change the key and you change everything about the notes, you probably would not recognize it as the black page. But there's some really cool things when you just think about that as a concept of taking a rhythm and rewriting the melody various different ways all the time.
0: Yeah. And this is something I wanted to get your opinion on, um, because I think the first time that I ever heard any Frank Zappa It wasn't an original, but it was a cover of Whipping Post uh, from like, I think, 1984. Uh, And when I heard that, I was in high school and I was a very big Allman Brothers fan at the time because of Dwayne Allman. And I just happened to come across that video of of Frank doing Whipping Post, but it really blew me away because his playing uh, in that version was so good. And of course, Robert Martin uh, had the incredible lead vocals there, but... Uh, you know, since then, I've found that Frank did some very interesting covers over the years. Like he he does a does a very interesting Stairway to Heaven, and I, I recently found uh, a cover that he did of uh, Christopher Cross's Ride Like the Wind, which I yeah. thought was uh, well, I thought it was better Cross than the was original. Well, Supposed
1: to actually come on stage and sing it, but he didn't. Mm. And one of the uh, guys that was on my dad's road crew did a Christopher Cross impersonation and sounded a lot like him and sang it instead. But you mentioned these other songs, including Whippin' Post. Whippin' Post became a song in the set list. And you hear, if you ever listen to the Helsinki record, the one where they're playing live in Helsinki, which was about 1974, 75, somebody in the audience yells out, Whippin' Post! Mm -hmm. And the band didn't know it at the time. And so my dad was like, I don't want to be stuck not knowing a song when somebody yells it out. So they later learned that song and it became a song that if somebody ever yelled it out, they would play it. And it just became part of the set list at a certain point. I don't know why, yeah. but it was just one of those things. So there's a, a little bit of that kind of history. You see the, the roadmap from where it was somebody saying whipping post in Helsinki to then it became part of the show later on.
0: Yeah. And, you know, his it is just interesting with his covers, like how, you know, he he, I guess like does it in a true cover format of completely making it his own, Um, you know, and uh, there was another interesting one that I found recently uh, from a show in the 80s where he brought out uh, Sting and they did uh, Murder by Numbers by the police, which I, you know, I thought was crazy because I love the police and Murder by Numbers is such a, a great sort of rarity from them. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was not expecting to hear sting when I found, uh, that, that version of the yeah, song. Yeah,
1: that was a great version. He came out, I think that was on the 1988 tour, but right around the same time sting had also done a cover of my dad's song, idiot bastard son, which is actually mm. a really good cover. If you, if you check that out, uh, he, he performs that song very well.
0: Nice. And, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, well, that's what I was going to mention while we were talking about live material, uh, you know, obviously Frank had a lot of different lineups over the years, which band, uh, was your favorite?
1: I liked all the bands in the middle to late seventies the best. That's my favorite era of the music for the composition style, the instrumentation, the sound of the instruments the recording sounds from that era. To me, that's the, the greatest treasure trove of all the music. I do like the early stuff a lot too. You know, everything from the early days is really cool because you can hear music technology changing and being pushed to the limit. My dad did so many things with different speeds of recording. So you hear drums at that are sped up and voices that are sped up, guitar that's sped up, all kinds of weird little things. There's sometimes feedback delays that kind of sound like they're going to just explode out of the speakers. He was doing a lot of stuff that was groundbreaking in the early days that then became kind of a normal thing uh, later on. So even the Beatles were aware of some of that stuff. And uh, when they made Sgt. Pepper's, they really did draw on some things that they had heard in some of my dad's music in terms of segues and how to put some stuff together. That was, um, that was a thing that my dad was doing that other people weren't doing, segwaying music and having crossfades and, and doing a lot of stuff that just made it sound like an audio movie. That's really the best description.
0: Yeah. And I, you bring that up. I, I seem to remember reading that Paul McCartney, I think said that Sergeant Pepper was the Beatles freakout basically. Yeah. So, um, and I, I was going to mention that I, uh, I feel like the, the lineup of the band that I really like is, is probably that early to mid eighties, because of course, like, you know, you've got Steve Vai it, uh, I've, I've just heard a lot, uh, a lot from that period that I
1: really like. Yeah, there's great Uh, stuff there too. I mean, mm -hmm. the You Are What You Is record and then on into Them or Us and a few other things. That's the era where Steve was playing a lot of the stunt guitar parts, as my dad called it. So it was cool to hear things like Sinister Footwear being played on the choral sitar. And I liked hearing a lot of the really beautiful melodies on things like... um, uh, what would be, uh, I can't remember the name of the the one song, but uh, he, Steve Vai ended up playing a lot of the really difficult things. And I used to love to see that stuff where he was playing envelopes or alien orifice or some of the really tricky rhythmic things that were written in the music. But oddly enough, he never played St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast or Inca Rhodes on guitar. And then when I started doing the touring of playing my dad's music, I learned that stuff on guitar. And he said he tried to learn that stuff, but he just couldn't do it. He ran out of the room Mm. because it was too frustrating. He just couldn't do it. Uh, And so he had previously thought that to be impossible, but then there I was playing it night after night on tour. Now that was, Not without a lot of effort, I would probably say that I had thousands of hours of practice to make that possible for me to play. Mm -hmm. Because in 2006, when we started, I had already been working on the music for at least a year and totally changing how I played guitar. And when I was learning St. Alfonso's or the Fast Lines in Inca Roads, I would play that stuff. And even though it goes by in a few seconds... I would play that stuff hours and hours and hours a day. And even before every show, I would be warming up backstage, playing those hard parts probably for two hours before going out on stage and playing a two and a half hour show. So Mm -hmm. even seconds before going on stage, I was still running parts of Inca roads just to make sure that it was under my fingers. Now, if I had to sit there and try to play it right now, there's no way I could. I haven't even played guitar hardly at all since 2020. But Mm. that kind of stuff, even though I built up the ability to do it, unless you're doing it all the time, it's not something that you can just do.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I did want to quickly mention to anyone listening, uh, any new Zappa listeners that, uh, you know, to check out the live material, because I also think that's an accessible starting point for Frank's music. And kind of like what you were mentioning earlier, some songs – you you may think actually sound better live than in the studio. I think a track like Dynamo Hum uh, is one that I've always preferred to hear live uh, rather than the studio version.
1: Well, he did incorporate sort of jokes that happened on tour and there was, he called it folklore. He would inject folklore from tour into different songs. So Dynamo Hum would have different elements that would get introduced night after night. So there are some live performances where different things happen. He would change the arrangement. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it would go country. Sometimes it was really more disco. There's all kinds of things that he loved to do in the eighties. He made almost everything reggae, which was Mm -hmm. kind of a joke. Uh, you know, he had this, uh, um, thing where it was like, he was, he would twist his hair and, the band would take whatever they were playing and now that would suddenly make it reggae.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's like in uh ride like the wind, it, it goes into reggae as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I, I would love to know since we're right at the start of 2024, what are your plans for this year?
1: I don't know. I really have not been thinking about doing any touring for a long time because financially the landscape has changed so much with what the costs are, the inflation of everything from gasoline and tour bus prices and all of that stuff makes it very risky to go out there and try to tour. Uh, That Mm -hmm. being said, we are looking at possible opportunities to do something this year. I don't know when, maybe by summertime or the fall, but, um, it happens to be the 50th anniversary of Apostrophe and also the Roxy. So that material would be fun to play, maybe not play the entire albums, but play material from both of those albums interspersed with other stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk about, uh, you know, like how it's it, uh, it's been difficult to sort of get back into touring because of costs and that sort of thing. Um, would you look at doing something like maybe a residency like Dweezel at caesar's palace or something
1: <laughs> i don't think there would be any interest in that you know i don't think las vegas is a, a zappa kind of town
0: yeah for sure um and uh, one more one more thing before we move into the guessing section of the podcast when i was doing research for this interview I saw how you did some acting back in the day and I was blown away to see that you were in, uh, the running man with Arnold Schwarzenegger yep. and, uh, I've of course seen the movie, but I, I had no idea you were in it until I was, you know, researching. And then I was like, I looked at some click clips yep. and it was like, Oh yeah, there's Dweezil. Um, yep. so what was it like to be in a movie with Arnold? Uh, like when well, he was really was, at his uh, peak,
1: it was kind of crazy because, people don't realize how much waiting around happens during making movies. So Mm -hmm. I was part of the, the ragtag team of uh, people that were supposed to be these gun carrying uh, you know, rebels that have to take over this TV studio. Uh, And this scene that we were supposed to do was involving some stuff outside, some stuff going through tunnels and, It was in a place that was out in Fontana, some sort of uh, beat up warehouse or some, but a really dirty location, dusty, dirty, Mm -hmm. filthy. We had clothes on that were filthy. And so you would be sitting there waiting to do whatever you're going to do. And your call time might be, let's say, three o'clock in the afternoon. And then come three or four in the morning, you still hadn't worked yet. And they're like, "Okay, it's going to be the next day. And you keep getting different call times and it just shifts and shifts. So what was supposed to be one or two days on set ended up being two weeks because they just were running behind on a lot of stuff. So every day you go there and get put on this filthy stuff and sit in a filthy environment for hours and hours waiting. And then finally, at some point, it was probably at four or five in the morning And we got to the the one scene and all of us that were waiting around to do this, we were tired and we didn't really have much rehearsal. And they're trying to get everything happening. And just we did it one time and then just moved on. So it was just the experience of being in that environment and doing a lot of waiting around. And then it's go time. And then you don't really know. No one's really saying, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. It's like, um, all right, let's go, action. Okay, got it, moving on. So that experience was definitely not what you think of when you make movies. It was just like, what just happened? Uh, And I remember Mm -hmm. mostly just sitting around in filthy, dirty clothes. That's my my biggest memory of that film.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I, I have done... Uh, a little bit of acting on the side myself because in my hometown of calgary uh there's actually quite a lot of film production going on here and so i've been able to get some background roles and it absolutely is a lot of waiting around and it'll be like two in the morning and you're still you know waiting to to get called on to set yeah it's right. definitely it's something not a lot of people realize and it's also interesting that uh, running man was filmed in fontana because i've i've been to Fontana and. I have heard how they've like, they filmed Terminator there and stuff like that. Cause yeah, there's a ton of like abandoned steel mills and stuff there. So it's a good, a good filming location. All right. So now we are entering the guessing portion of this podcast for which it gets its name. So I'll explain the rules to you and to any new listeners we may have in this bag that I'm holding is a record that I've pulled from my collection. And, uh, so what I will do is I'll give you three clues about this album and then, uh, then it's just a game of 20 questions. So you got to ask me questions to try and figure out which album it is. And don't worry if you get stuck, I will give good hints. All uh, right. I'll probably get
1: stuck. So let's see what happens. (laughs) All
0: right. Dweezil Zappa. Are you ready to guess that record? Yes, I am. Here are your three clues. (laughs) Uh, This album came out in the 1980s. Okay. It featured three top 40 singles, and it marked a major change in this band's sound. Question one.
1: Uh, Def Leppard Hysteria.
0: (laughs) It's not not Def Leppard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Question two. Which year did it come out? It
0: came out in 1986.
1: 1986 and it had three top singles, you said?
0: Three top 40 singles, yes. And
1: it changed the sound of the band. Mhm. Um 5150 from Van Halen.
0: That uh that is correct. <laughs> so I pull it out here, 5150. It's yeah. the album. All it's, right. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I I knew I had to pick a Van Halen album, just knowing your personal history with Eddie. And uh, before we dive deeper into the record, I'll give some facts about the album for those unfamiliar with it. Sure. Um, 5150 is the seventh studio album by Van Halen, released on March 24th, 1986. The album was the first of four albums to be recorded with Sammy Hagar, who replaced the previous lead singer, David Lee Roth. Uh, The album was the band's first to hit number one on the charts, selling six million copies. And as I mentioned in the Clues, it had three top 40 singles with uh, Why Can't This Be Love reaching number three on the Hot 100. And, you know, I think this album will lead to a great discussion because one of the great debates in rock and roll is David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar. And pretty much everyone I meet is like, Dave is better and i feel like i'm the only person that that quite firmly prefers the the hagar records. uh but i'm also of the opinion that like fighting about this stuff is a bit dumb and that there's good yeah. things about both versions of the band. so yeah, what's what's your stance on this issue?
1: i think it's two different worlds entirely. van halen as a band with david lee roth from the beginning, there's nothing like it. i mean, if you see some of the early footage of them there's videos now that you could see where they're on their first tour and they're the opening act for Journey. And you see this band come out, and that's your opening act. There's no way you want to go on stage after Van Halen. Mm-hmm. David Lee Roth yeah. at that point was unbelievable as a front man, and he was singing great. Um, so the stuff that he did on all the records, the first six, those performances the way that he was able to make the lyrics work with Edwards guitar playing. There's nothing like that. It really is amazing what they did together. The four of them, because the way those records were captured for the most part was just live performances. Oftentimes Mm -hmm. Dave was singing during the performance and they didn't necessarily end up using his scratch vocal, but the whole band was putting in the effort all at once. And that's a different thing than what you see when people typically make records now, and even then. You know, Mm -hmm. these guys were really good at playing their instruments in a very proficient way, but writing songs that were memorable, that had things that would stand the test of time. I mean, if you listen to Ain't Talking About Love and you break down the lyrics and stuff, it's a great song. There's like cool imagery, the way the whole thing comes together, it's it's probably one of their more simplified songs, but the power in the riff and the tone and all that stuff, it's just amazing. Now, Sammy, on the other hand, technically a much better singer in a just pure technical sense. And mm-hmm. the way that he sang became more melody driven. So that really changed how Edward's guitar parts went. It became more chord progressions as opposed to just straight up riffs. Uh, and so there was a little bit of a, a shift. He he would definitely have riffs that were the majority of the songs. But when you get into the keyboard stuff and some other things, it's, it's based around a chord progression that has certain kinds of... Um, uh, voicings and fills and stuff, less of the innovative guitar stylings. So, what you see is 5150 is probably the last record that had some new innovative guitar stylings and playing from Edward because he was using the Transtram guitar so he could pull it into a different key and he could mm-hmm. do all kinds of stuff to make things get uh, different sounds. That he wouldn't get from a just normal guitar. So songs like "Get Up" or "Summer Nights," that has a lot of use of the trans tram. Uh, but mm-hmm. overall, I think they're two different bands. They're both very exciting to listen to because of the guitar playing, the drumming, the musicianship, and when all said and done, it's great songwriting across the board. There's memorable. Mm-hmm songs from both eras.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you know, I think the reason though why I slightly prefer the the Hagar records is just because like, you know, as you were sort of mentioning, Eddie was starting to use like chord progressions. And I feel like, you know, the music in the David Lee Roth era was like, they they were like party albums. It's like every song had kind of a raucous feel. And starting with 5150, you know, they were starting to do ballads. You know, there was like uh, a bit more depth to the music, I I think. And of course, having Sammy as a vocalist really helped, you know, make it a little more uh, melodic as well, which I I enjoy. Um, Well, I think uh,
1: the the growth that you're talking about, It, it comes in the form of songwriting and arranging. And the people that are just straight up guitar fans, That's not necessarily what they want from Van Halen. The party aspect, Mm -hmm. the rocking, good time, the energy of a a riff like Unchained or Mean Street, stuff like that, that is, if you're a, a fan of Van Halen, that gets into your DNA and you're like, that's what I want. I want more of that, more, more, more. And if you're the band itself, and you're like, well, I want to do some other stuff. I want to try some different things. You know, By the time they get into something like finish what you started or things that are just very different sounds, um, not everybody goes along for the ride because they're like, that's not the same as Unchained. And mm-hmm. so the thing is, you have to, as a fan, allow the artist to grow and take their explorations where they want. And if you like it, great. If you don't, you still have the other stuff that you can listen to, but you can't just say going that direction is off limits. And I think mm-hmm. that's where the challenge of Van Halen uh, in the later years was Edward was trying to just progress as a writer, as a songwriter and wanted to use some different textures and things. And that was obviously his interest and his prerogative but so many people would say, oh, I just wish it was more like the old stuff. And same mm-hmm. for David Lee Roth. By the time he was back in the band, he also wanted to keep growing in different directions. And the fan base is like, oh, we want to pull you guys back to what we love in the the uh, early years. So it's a bit of a struggle if you're the trying to create new content, new music, new art. <laughs> but. <laughs> People don't want you to go in the direction that you're interested in. So it is what it is, but I think you always have the music that you like available to you. So if you like the early mm-hmm. records, just keep listening to those,
0: yeah. And I mean, I don't think the band had to worry too much because, as I mentioned the the record went to number one, and all of their albums with Sammy went to number one. Um, now what uh, on fifty one fifty what what are some of your favorite tracks?
1: i would say my favorite song is 5150 because the Mm. guitar playing and the arranging on that is so unique and the interplay between edward and alex is i just love it the the way that they turn corners together and have interesting rhythmic changes and accents you know they really play as the full functioning rhythmic unit whereas most other bands it's the bass and the drums that are the foundation in Van Halen. It's always the guitar and the drums that are the foundation. They move together and there could be a push and pull and tempo, but they're locked in. Like these guys just can feel where that stuff is supposed to sit. And everybody else Mm -hmm. has to kind of fit in with that. And that is what is so cool. Edward never sounded more like Edward than when he played with Alex. If he played with other people, He still he's he had his own thing. He was recognizable, but it didn't feel as free as when he was just able to do his thing with Alex.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think being brothers, they definitely connected more than probably most musicians would. Um, And I for me, my favorite track would have to be best of both worlds. Like um, as we were talking about just like, you know, progressing or Eddie wanting to progress his songwriting. I think the chords on that song just sound so amazing and uh, it's always been my favorite uh, song out of all the Van Halen songs. I just, it's a great song. song. You know,
1: it is funny because some people um, hear it. And then also think of the cool in the gang song celebration because there there are some similarities, but I never thought of that. that It's very, very, um, cool he's playing on a strat so you hear some slight different uh tonal variations
0: mm-hmm. yeah i i never uh that, that's an interesting observation that i never made until now but i i think i could see the cell, uh the cool and the gang uh thing in there so yeah that that's interesting and um i i'd love to talk uh a little more about your relationship with eddie uh when was the last time you saw or
1: or heard from him before his passing Um, I don't remember exactly how long it was um, that I had spoken to him before, you know, the terrible news of his passing, but it was within probably six or eight months. Um, So he was in good spirits when I was talking to him.
0: That's, uh, yeah, that's good to know. At least you were, you were uh, still close with him near the end there. Um, and I saw on your, your Instagram, uh, you made a post when he died and I thought it was, it was a beautiful story about how after Frank's passing, he took you to hang out with Jimmy Page, which, you know, outside of the sad context of it, it's totally awesome. But, uh, yeah. you know, goes, goes to show you guys had a really good relationship.
1: Well, the thing about him that some people experienced with him was that he was a very kind and generous person. And he would just do things that were unexpected. So the very first person that called the house when the news broke that my dad passed was Edward. And it was about 530 in the morning. Mm. Uh, And he didn't have to do that. He he called and said, hey, uh, I'm around. If you want to get together, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Now, a lot of people say that, but they have no intention of doing anything. But he was persistent. And just would call and say, what are you doing today? You want to get together? You want to do something? And it was such a surprise because I didn't have that kind of relationship with him really. Uh, prior to that, I mean, I would talk to him once or twice a year. But this was, hey, let's go do something. We went and like hit golf balls. We we talked about music. We did some things. But he would call every day for a week and see how things were going now Mm -hmm. that's a surprise that somebody would do that and have really no uh reason to do that other than there's a human aspect to that like he felt like maybe i should do this i don't think anybody put him up to it you know and so that was a really life-changing thing
0: yeah absolutely um, and uh, besides Eddie, uh, did you get to know anyone else from Van Halen?
1: Well, I got to know Alex a little bit and of course you know they're so similar in some ways because they're brothers but Alex uh, one of the greatest musicians of all time himself, an incredible drummer he had a unique sound that he created in his playing and, and the tone of his snare drum but he's uh, he's a character he's hilarious and he's a he's a cool guy. Um, so I had met the other uh, band members in different uh, scenarios at different times. Michael Anthony is a, a super lovely guy, like very very friendly. Dave is uh you know, he's a character himself and I'm a big fan of what he did especially in the early days. Um and Sammy, uh he I've met him a few times in in different places and uh, he's always been very personable and and a very nice guy. So uh, that's been my experience.
0: Nice, yeah, and you know um, it's interesting because uh, Sammy and Michael are going on a tour this summer, and it's like the the theme of the tour is they're going to largely focus on Van Halen music. So, if anyone from Sammy's camp is listening, let's get Dweezil on stage. I think you would be a well a great I, guest for a I show. I hear like that. they're
1: having Joe Satriani do most of that stuff.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> We have uh, reached the end of another episode. I want to thank uh, Dweezil Zappa once again for taking the time to appear on the podcast. It's a real honor to be speaking with uh, with someone such as yourself. And you know, as an up and coming artist and a guitar player myself, uh, I really appreciated getting to hear your approach to the instrument and and uh, just hearing about your career. So thanks again for being on the show and and uh, keep it greasy.
1: All right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you again.
0: And thanks to you, the listeners for tuning in. The podcast has had a ton of momentum lately, and that wouldn't be possible without all of you listening. So I really appreciate it. Make sure to leave a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends to check us out. If you'd like to see the video version of the podcast, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're also on Instagram at guess that record. Remember to keep rocking and And we'll see you on the next episode of Guess That Record.